and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 172, the second one in March already, and hopefully not too many background noises from the fact that it's incredibly windy outside. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been another pretty depressing week on the world stage, and you have to say maybe even a bit frightening too, with no positive end in sight. The conflict is the basis of one of our interviews today, but more on that later, although you definitely won't want to miss it. On the home front, I'm now out of action for a little while, as we went hiking because of the great weather, and did a couple of walks along some beautiful glens. Pretty rivers, waterfalls, mountains, what more could you ask for to get away from all the awful news for a while? Well, on the second hike, I was having fun with our son, occasionally cutting the corners of some of the switchbacks as we descended the steep hill. You can guess what's coming. On the last one, it was a bit muddy at the bottom, and my feet slipped out from under me, which normally wouldn't be a bad thing, but one of them got stuck in the mud, and my body went right past it. So my toes touched my shin, and then my heel touched my rear end, something I've not been able to do since I was in my 20s, or maybe even since I was a toddler, you know, prehistoric times. Anyway, that foot now resembles a blue balloon, thanks to some torn tendons and ligaments. I knew I couldn't go this long without something weird happening. I'm defiantly expecting to hike again this weekend, but that's the stupid part of me talking, as it often does. My son went on an afternoon outdoors course this weekend as well, where they learn all about survival skills in the wilderness. He came back with a decorated piece of wood, so clearly that's what you do when you need to forage for food in the wild, You make a pretty piece of artwork with some wood and the glue that is just hanging around in the forest, and then you trade it for a sandwich in the nearest town. The flyer that came home about it mentioned taking advantage of the wild food, like strawberries and blackberries, which in March is pretty ambitious, unless there's a store nearby with a chilled food section and you have some money with you. Still, he enjoyed being with his friends for a few hours, and it gave me the opportunity to completely fail to catch up on anything meaningful. I'm always full of good intentions until there's a new CD arrives, or there's sport on TV. I guess at this point I should mention who we have for guests this week. In the past few shows, we've had conversations with a few people who have appeared on the podcast several times, and that's the case again this week, because we chatted with Miguel Freitas, Vice President of Health and Scientific Affairs at Danone, North America. We also talked Stevia with Tom Fuser, VP of Marketing at Haochian, and John Allen from Kite Consulting about the war in Ukraine. And that means it's time to take a look at some of the news we've had over the past week. And there's been quite a lot, so much so that I'm actually ahead for a change. I managed to get a few of the videos up from the ice cream and artisan food show that I attended last month. We had another article, an extremely long one, on what's happening with countries pulling out of Russia, or not pulling out as the case may be, and I've already updated that one three times. We also had more financials with Lander Lakes, Glanbia and Friesland Campina announcing their 2021 results. 
Unilever switched its cart door ice cream packaging to paper tubs. We had the Maxim Foods Global Dairy Update for March, and the World Championship Cheese Contest in the US was won by a Swiss Gruyere for the second time in a row. Feel Foods is using HPP to extend the shelf life of its products. In the UK, Muller and Waitrose are partnering on ditching coloured milk caps, and Ili says one of its factories in China is the country's first zero-carbon food facility. DSM extended its Delvogard culture range to tackle food waste in yogurts, Danone unveiled its new strategic plan, and you can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com. And so that means it's time for our first guest. We talked about Stevia with Tom Fuser, VP of Marketing at Haochian, which has just changed its name from ZCHT. And we'll get all the details from Tom. I wonder if you could first tell me about the company, ZCHT, or is it ZCHT? Yeah, it's a it's a good question actually to start with because you know that is how the company is known or has been known as ZCHT or ZCHT as you refer to this. But you know, we just relaunched the company's corporate brand. So how TN is the one that is officially used across the world. So and is planned to be used around the world in the future. Houtian is a leading producer and a global supplier of premium quality natural sweeteners, nutritional and functional ingredients. It's a uh, privately owned business, which was incorporated about 20, 22, 23 years ago. It is based in a city called Juchang, which is probably not the most well-known city in, in Europe, which is East China in the Shandong province. You know, as I said, it's a global leader in naturally extracted sweeteners as stevia products privately, and is actually one of the top seven business ingredient businesses in sugar reduction. But it's not only stevia. So alongside its flagship stevia business, how Tien is also a global leader in the production of inositol and bicalin root extracts, which are mostly used as nutritional ingredients. The company's core competencies really lie in this green technology and its large-scale, highly efficient, vertically integrated agriculture, as well as you know, providing application technology for food manufacturers. And in terms of the products that your company has, what do you have that's useful and relevant for dairy and dairy alternative producers? The key products are definitely the sugar reduction products, so it's stevia. So sugar reduction in the dairy sector has gathered the momentum in the last um, couple of years, uh, in the last few years, more than a couple. Producers around the world are targeting the increasing consumer demand for healthier products. So low sugar content and clean label are the top scoring requirement in such solution as we experience, which manufacturers need to address. So how the ends so pure stevia product portfolio offers a wide range of solutions for various dairy applications. With the different products, like say, for example, um, spoonable yogurt or drinking yogurt, obviously have different textural properties, like obviously mouthfeel viscosity, which all modify sweetness and flavor perception. So to achieve the, uh, the most desirable sensory profile with stevia, it is possible uh, to do that by blending uh, different stevia-based sweeteners. It's not that well known, but each stevioglycoside has its unique properties and some minor components that don't add only sweetness, but also modify and enhance the flavor of the product that that are used in. So if you combine one or two or more stevioglycosides, and this actually can achieve 
the desired level of sweetness and also the taste profile in the dairy product in a, in a very nice way. One of our products, which is in our so-called Andromeda series, for example, specifically developed to provide more choices to balance you know, sensory experience, in particular dairy formulation. It provides a great new tool for two technologies. We found this to be very popular. And so you have the So Pure Stevia brand. Um, there are quite a lot of Stevia producers out there. What makes your product different from others on the market? So we are we are the biggest, you know, Haltian is the biggest leaf uh, processor in in the world. So one of the most important features of So Pure is the unparalleled range of naturally extracted stevia products. In most countries, only products made with uh, naturally extracted stevia glycosides. Like going through this process can use the word stevia or show uh, the stevia leaf on the packaging instead of some chemically sounding names. I mean, this is what uh, the natural seeker, health conscious consumers really expect. I mean, this portfolio of naturally extracted stevia products is, the, is really the foundation of our signature blend products as well. So we, we have got these blends that I referred to for the previous question that are carefully crafted for different, uh, from different glycosides to offer more synergy and uh, for different uh, food and drink applications. The other key advantage of SoPure is consistency. So Haltian's vertically integrated supply chain from variant development through processing right to the application guarantees the consistency in the end products. For uh, plant-based ingredients like stevia, especially the high-intensity sweetener categories where variation can naturally occur based on variant origin processing, this consistency is absolutely critical for food manufacturers. And this is what SoPure can address. And uh, if I may add the final point, which I think is very important, although it's, it's probably more about the company, but anyhow, it's a very important, the, the transparency, the sustainability of our agricultural work. We find this to be uh, an increasingly high concern for our, our customers and clients. SOPUR is often chosen for healthy and transparent practice in, in efforts and sustainability. I would say that is probably a key element too. Clearly, people are looking for sugar reduction right now it seems to be something that's really important in the, in a lot of companies and a lot of um, governments are looking to try and reduce sugar have you seen a, a big upturn in the amount of um, interest in stevia absolutely stevia is one of the fastest growing sugar replacement ingredients in the world it's partially driven by obviously the recent pandemic that has once again you know put a lot of effort on healthier nutrition but sugar reduction has been around for quite a few years. You refer to government efforts. That's definitely a an impact. You know, it, it pushes mostly the beverage manufacturers to move into low sugar or less sugar products to launch new variants to the market. But it's also the consumer demand. So the increase in consumer demand to to get this. So we see this pretty much a global phenomenon now. So. It started definitely in the Western countries mostly, but we see this pretty much in all corners of the world these days. One of the things about artificial sweeteners has tended to be that some of them have an aftertaste. or And, and I know that stevia is from a plant, but stevia, mm. I think, in the past has had that kind of um, label attached to it. How have you addressed the taste of the product? One of the key benefits of stevia is actually perceived natural. It is not only perceived natural, but it's in fact it's a plant-based natural ingredient. That's what that's one of the key reasons why it is chosen. But the key point that you raised here is obviously it, it's a challenge. You know, replacing 
replicating the pure sweet taste of sugar without any aftertaste is obviously one of the key challenges for any sweetener, sweetener alternative. That was more of a challenge for the first generation of stevia products that still had a relatively low purity. While many consumers got used to it and enjoying the special flavors of stevia, although I must say there was a limited understanding in the food industry about stevia and how to use it, which then created a little bit of a prejudice about you know, this. But the stevia sector of the industry, if you want to put it that way, went through an enormous change over the last decade in which uh, Haotian actually played an active role, particularly in the agricultural side. So if you look at the second generation of stevia products that could be characterized by the uh, high rabate content uh, are nice solutions. Sorry, I don't want to get into this, but rabate is the sweet component of the stevia leaf, one of the stevia components. Sweet co- uh, and uh, these are very popular products, uh, the second generation stevia products that can be used in many, uh, many applications e- e- even today, when the objective is a moderate sugar reduction. The Houtian Agriculture Science Center and our R&D laboratories developed new leaf variants afterwards with the third and fourth generation minor glycosides for further application for more ambitious or if you like more aggressive sugar reduction target. These products and as well as uh, Houtian's signature blends deliver excellent uh, sensory experience. So the problem of the aftertaste, I think I confidently say it's, it's actually pretty much solved these days. So you mentioned that the name has changed. Uh, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, okay. So since its foundation 22 years ago, yes, Houtian has become a global organization. Today, we serve customers on all continents in more than 80 countries. I mean, the business very quickly learned that our official name, you know, Zhucheng Houtian Farm, is a bit hard to remember <laughs> for some even to pronounce. It is also quite confusing as it suggests a chemical business that is specialized on medicine. So a new corporate brand name and the logo that comes with it that represents our core natural ingredients, such as stevia, leaves and, and corn, and aims to communicate our value proposition to customers around the world, which is really about you know, the natural roots and, and these natural ingredients that we bring in. To allow just to maybe say a couple of words about you know, the logo, which is obviously not easy to, to speak about in a, in a podcast, but uh, that is definitely a green logo, which has got the leaf. It's a prominent element of that. It doesn't only represent stevia, but this is a business that's deeply rooted in nature. And nature is central, what we really care for, as a business care for. Many businesses take some actions, some more seriously than others, but I mean, this is a central thing for how to protect the natural environment. So we make comprehensive use of plants, for example, without really any waste around this. The other thing is that we have got a little yellow part in the logo, which is, in fact, reminds us not only to the corn that is a base product, but also represents the nutritional element of our portfolio. And obviously, with all of the different products that you have, you must have quite the R&D department. I wonder if you could tell me about the R&D and innovation that you have at the company. Sure, sure. Our innovation focuses on making naturally extracted high-quality stevia much more accessible for markets around the world. So both industry and most consumers would prepare to pay more for natural uh, ingredients, but how much more they can accept is another question. So our mission is to bring the best stevia solution closer to the people and change its current position as a high-cost niche, a little bit luxurious sweetener. Our leading agriculture science team constantly develops new leaf variants that uh, provide excellent taste with even better yield. 
So essentially, uh, bringing Stevia with new innovative solutions closer to the affordable solutions. The other area of innovation is the development of customer-focused um, applications-specific uh, bespoke stable glycoside blends that I talked about before, that are perfect match, for example, for a I don't know, let's say a strawberry drinking yogurt. How can, by being an innovative uh, sugar reduction solution provider, of course, um, investigate uh, several other natural sweetener ingredients technologies as you want to meet future market needs. I mean, these are a little early to talk about now. However, I encourage you know, prospective customers who are interested in partnering us to co-develop natural sweetening solutions to get in touch with our teams. Finally, I wonder what the company's vision is for this year and for the long term. I mean, on the long term, which, which is obviously a key critical thing here, on the long term, we aim to remain a leading global provider of sustainable natural sweetening solutions and functional ingredients. I mean, this year is, is a special one. You know, as the market demand for uh, stevia grows very fast, there is a little uh, temporary shortage of supply in the market this year, which uh, many uh, notice, some might have not noticed. One of our key focuses is to offer our customers one of uh, our core strengths, which is actually quality at scale. Uh, we can ensure undisrupted delivery and supply to the market without problems. We also put a high focus on popularizing steel in the markets where it is still relatively immature. The example would be, for example, China, uh, where it's still a massive headroom for, for the category to grow. Another key area for us is sustainability, as we briefly referred to this uh, just a minute ago. Our extraction process produces sweetener at lower carbon footprint than any other mass market sweeteners. We have significantly reduced our water consumption, which is now uh, industry-leading. We produce essentially zero waste, as we utilize essentially all elements of the byproduct. But of course, we can't be satisfied with this. So aim to be and remain at the forefront of sustainability in the natural sweetness sector as well. Now it's over to an interview about a new study on gut health. Last month we had an article about how low-carb diets such as keto and paleo may be among the most popular choices for New Year's dieters, but this type of approach may not be the best for your gut. The study was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and to tell us more about the study and the diets is Miguel Freitas, PhD, Vice President of Health and Scientific Affairs at Danone, North America. Yeah, I wonder if you could give me a bit of background on what the latest study is. Sure. Hi, Jim. Uh, nice to talk to you again. This study was uh, an international research team that uh, led the study and was done by Aurelie Cotillard and a colleague of mine, Patrick Vega, at the Known Nutrition in France at the research center. And the investigators examined the dietary pattern of 1,800 adults in the American Gut Project. The American Gut Project, I don't know if you know what it is, but it's an ongoing research initiative studying the microbiome composition of citizen volunteers, so the general population uh, in the United States. And uh, this project was performed in collaboration with researchers at the University of California, San Diego, and the contributions were coordinated by a particular center within the university 
that is called the Center for Microbiome Innovation at UC San Diego. And it was published on a pretty prestigious journal, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, end of 2021. So what they did is they used food composition surveys and they divided the study participants into five groups based on their long-term dietary intakes. So they studied five main dietary patterns. The first one was the plant-based group. And these are individuals that were particularly vegetarian or vegan. The second group was what they called the flexitarian group. And these are individuals that ate an abundant amount of plant-based foods, but also incorporated some meat and particularly high amounts of dairy foods, including fermented dairy foods. The third group they call the health conscious American diet group. So this is a diet that is typically rich in nuts, whole grain cereals, some dairy foods, but also includes some sugary sweet and refined grains and low in vegetables. The fourth group was the standard American diet group, uh, which I think you know very well what it is. These individuals had the highest consumption of highest consumption of sugar sweetened beverages and processed foods, and the lowest amounts of plant-based foods as well as fiber. And then, very interestingly, the last group they called the exclusion diet group, and this was a very restrictive diet that uh, had the lowest amount of carbohydrates and the highest amount of fats and animal products. So this would be very close to what we would call a keto diet. So they have this segmentation of these five different dietary patterns with a large amount of individuals in each group. And what they did next was that they, they did analysis on the gut microbiome of the study participants. And what they found is that the alpha diversity of the gut microbiota, which is a measure of the different types of bacteria in the gut microbiome, was significantly higher in the flexitarian pattern compared to standard American diets. So once again, one of the measures of the health of the microbiome, alpha diversity, was higher in the flexitarian pattern compared to the other ones. So as you know, high diversity in the microbiota and also present of certain types of bacteria like bifidobacterium has started to be recognized as the measures of a healthy microbiome. So this is really one of the few studies that I've seen that specifically calls out the fact that a flexitarian diet not only has one of the highest healthy eating and index scores, but also associated with the highest microbiome diversity. So it's a really interesting study. You mentioned the keto and the, uh, and I guess is the paleo diet as well. They seem to be quite popular. What's the issue with those in terms of the gut microbiome? Right. The study showed, particularly for keto and paleo diets, that low carb eaters from what they call these exclusion diets had the lowest relative abundance of bifidobacterium, which is recognized as a beneficial type of bacteria in the gut. So altogether, the study highlights how some diets may be more microbiota friendly than others. What would the effect on somebody's body be of not having those bacteria in there? 
Well, you know that the gut microbiome is really important and is in, involved in many different onset of certain diseases and in health outcomes. So it's been recognized more and more that the microbiome is really at the interface of a lot of health outcomes. So all the studies right now are looking to see if with a particular intervention, and in this case, how what people are eating has an impact or not on the diversity of this microbiome. I mean, we've been messing with our microbiome in the past 70, 100 years or so with the increase of antibiotics use, everyday challenges from stress, the fact that C-sections are very common right now. So all of this is really messing up with our gut microbiome. So anything we can do to reestablish a healthy microbiome, either by increasing its diversity or by increasing numbers of bacteria that are considered beneficial, like bifidobacterium, I think it's always going to contribute to health outcomes. Depending on where you are in the world, there are dietary guidelines and those differ somewhat in different countries. But how does what you've discovered fit in with dietary guidelines that often are recommending reductions in meat and dairy? This study reinforced the value of a flexitarian approach, which I believe is very aligned with the dietary guidelines. So today, if you look at the dietary guidelines for Americans, they still recommend two to three servings of dairy per day for many nutritional reasons. A plant-forward dietary pattern that did not fully eliminate meat and dairy was more beneficial to the microbiome compared to eliminating these foods entirely. So reducing, not eliminating animal proteins, such as meat and dairy, is the approach that I think consumers are also seem to be taking and the study results demonstrate the value of eating more plant-based foods while still enjoying some animal protein. So if you take a close look at what some fermented dairy products provide, bacteria and certain probiotics are key to those products, right? So we, we know that probiotics and fermented foods can enrich the gut microbiome. I'm not completely surprised that a diet that includes fermented dairy products benefits the gut microbiome. And we also know that animal protein has been shown, other animal proteins besides dairy has been shown to increase microbiome diversity to a certain extent. So I think this study fits very well, at least with the current dietary guidelines for Americans in the United States. What I'm surprised, Jim, is that the dietary guidelines have not yet started to consider recommending the inclusion of fermented products in our diets. We know that the microbiome can be altered by everyday challenges, like we've mentioned before, antibiotics and so forth, and ultimately by diet. And since we started to mess up with our microbiome, we should start considering nourishing it better because alterations of the microbiome as I mentioned, have been associated with many disorders, from obesity to diabetes and digestive conditions. Today, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans does not mention the microbiome yet, even though all the studies in medicine that are being done, interventions, have a component of studying the microbiome because it's, it's becoming so important in health and disease. 
What do you think that the results would suggest about the effect of diet on gut health and the recommendations going forward? Well, we're hoping that, first of all, I think going forward, I would love to be able to understand further the amazing amount of data from this American Gut Project. There's so many other aspects that could be explored, including the effect of specific products on the gut microbiome. There's another study that I would like to point out that also came out recently from Justin Sonnenberg team at Stanford. They also showed, and this was a clinical, randomized clinical study, they also showed that among different food groups that people were consuming, a fermented food diet increased the microbiome diversity and decreased markers of inflammation, specifically for yogurt and vegetable brine drinks. Vegetable brine drinks, I don't know if you're familiar with, but you know, there's like the, the pickles that ferment and so forth. So they've shown that fermentation is key to help the microbiome diversity. So I'm hoping that moving forward, the dietary guidelines advisory committees start considering the microbiome more as a key piece in health and disease and start also recommending for people to consume foods that can impact the gut microbiome. And how do changes in diet affect the gut? Or, you know, a lot of people these days take supplements or every once in a while people take antibiotics. How do changes in diet, like if somebody's on a keto diet and they decide, okay, I'll start doing something different, how, how do those changes affect the gut? Well, I, you can see in this study that people that adopt a keto diet have much less bifidobacterium in their gut than people that adopt a flexitarian diet. We can't say it's a cause and effect because this particular study was not a randomized double-blind control study, but the study that I just mentioned from Justin Sardenberg was a clinical study and randomized, and they found that people that were consuming more fermented foods had a higher diversity of the microbiome. So as I mentioned before, modern life is associated with changes in our gut microbiota, right? And this is where food and nutrition can have an important role. And there's really some key windows of opportunity where we can beneficially impact the gut microbiome, such as the few weeks of life, you know, when the baby is being colonized, and in adulthood when there's disturbances. It's really important to consider diet when we want to maintain a healthy microbiome. You know, I did a lot of research on two major probiotics that are in the market right now, Activia and Denactive. And with both of these products, we know that incorporating them into a balanced diet can have a positive effect on health. Specifically, Activia, which has a particular bifidobacterium, which is, on the other hand, missing in people that adopt a keto or paleo diet, was specifically selected to help gut health by decreasing digestive discomfort. So even with food and supplements, uh, we have opportunities to change the gut microbiome. Of course, I come from the food industry, not from the supplements industry. And I always believe that probiotics through food has a superior and potentially more effective method of affecting the gut microbiome, particularly because they can survive much better 
the passage through the digestive system and get where the microbiome actually is, which is majorly in the large intestine. And then you have all the nutrition that comes with food as well. I wanted to touch also a little bit on antibiotics. I think you know that antibiotics are super important in our daily life, but they also disrupt considerably the gut microbiome. And we know that many fermented foods with probiotics actually can rebalance the gut microbiome following consumption of antibiotics. If people change their eating habits, how would they go about that? And what would the advantages of having a better gut microbiome be? So we typically overlook what we eat, right? And we know now that this can impact the gut microbiome. So how can people change their eating habits? Well, first of all, making the right choices. We know that diet is influencing the diversity and composition of our gut microbiome, which we know that can have tremendous impact on our overall health. I mentioned before, people that are obese versus people that are lean have a completely different gut microbiome. People with diabetes potentially a different microbiome. So for people looking to change their eating habits, the results from this study really prove that a healthy microbiome or a healthy gut microbiota is mainly supported by a balance between all food groups without necessarily making huge restrictions, such as restricting fiber-rich grain foods or animal products. To me, the flexitarian eating approach or the flexitarian eating pattern, which once again includes abundant amounts of plant-based foods and animal-based foods, such as some meat and dairy, has proven to be the most beneficial when it comes to at least improving the diversity of our gut microbiota, according to this study. From what you were talking about earlier, there's still clearly lots to be discovered in this area. I imagine that you're still working on a lot of studies in the area. Yeah, I, I am connected to our research team, which are, of course, very interested in continuing to explore this amazing amount of data from the American Gut Project, trying to segment those folks to understand particular products that they consume more often and see if we can find uh, additional associations between particular foods and effects on the gut microbiome. This is not the only project that we are involved. I believe we talked in the past that I'm very close involved as well with a microbiome research project involving COVID outcomes. We're expecting results to come out in the next few months. And again, that will provide us a lot of insights to understand you know, onset of COVID or severity of COVID and impacts on the microbiome and what dietary interventions we should do for preventing some of the outcomes in the future when we have pandemics like this. I don't think there's anyone who hasn't been impacted on some level by what's currently happening in Ukraine. Like everyone else, I'm hoping for a quick and peaceful solution to this, and I guess we always have to believe and try and stay positive. Just yesterday, I wrote a long piece about what companies are doing in both Ukraine and Russia, and it's definitely a tough situation. 
This isn't the fault of the people in Russia, and yet they are going to be the ones bearing the brunt of the sanctions and the pullout of many companies. It is, however, good to see many of those companies are going to continue to pay their salaries, although that may not be much help if there's nothing to buy and inflation skyrockets. And you can bet that those at the top in Russia aren't going without food or their luxuries. And of course, we definitely have to think of the people in Ukraine who are on the receiving end of all of this. So it's complicated and it's a constantly changing situation. Of course, there are so many aspects to what's going on, and one of the most important is food supply. Last week, we carried an article about two reports from Kite Consulting on how dairy is being affected because of what's happening in Ukraine. And I'm happy to say we got to have a conversation yesterday with John Allen from Kite Consulting about the situation. First, before we even get into some of the issues of what's going on, I wonder if you could fill me in as to the, a bit of background on Kite Consulting. Yeah, well, Jim, it's great to uh, see you. And uh, thanks very much for asking me along. Yeah, Kite Consulting started in 2000. I was one of the founding partners and one of the managing partners now. We've grown steadily over the years and we've got about uh, 50 odd people now in the business, started with 14, which has been really good considering the industry's been in contraction. We got recognised specialism in dairy largely. We do technical and business work, but also we do a lot of supply chain management work, which is when processors or retailers want to get farmers to change behaviours, like, for instance, antibiotic reductions or selective dry cow therapy or now carbon reduction. We can put in place programmes that are professionally delivered to do that. So that's where we do a lot of work. And also it's given us a really good understanding of the supply chain. And we also got a lot of good content which we've been using internationally and that's been part of the basis for the reports we've been doing recently with work we've been doing with Eric Egelsma who is previously a strategy director with Friesland Campina so that's the basis of our business. Is it a global concern? We have done international work in the past. I won't go into all of that now, but we're basically UK focused. But we have got a very good network through IFCN to international contacts. And one of the businesses, for instance, we do link in with, and we call it a sister business as though it's owned by us. It isn't, but it's an independent business similar to ourselves in New Zealand. And also we've got a lot of contacts there. Like I've got good contacts in Argentina from personal contacts and things like that. So there's a network. And I think one of the things now in this land of Zoom and World Teams or whatever, is that now we can be far more globally focused and we can do far more things with a lot more people from overseas. And that is great in a way because I think it's bringing a lot more specialism and the best people. You can access the best people in the world now via Zoom or Teams, which is a big change from where we would have been 10 years ago. And you just came up with a couple of reports on the situation in Ukraine. Um, Typically, how long would you take on reports? Because obviously, this only started about 10 days ago and, and you were able to put something out very quickly. Well, if we're focusing on Ukraine and the reports, actually, with Eric, who does a lot of work with us, then we did anticipate the invasion. I'm not trying to say we're clever, but we did anticipate it about five or six weeks ago. And so what we did is we prepared an analysis then on dairy markets in advance, knowing that the invasion wasn't likely to start until after the Olympics. And hey presto, it started straight after the Olympics. So we gauged that. But that meant we got that report on the stocks. 
And then the feed report, we do weekly updates with a business called Commodities Risk Management. We buy in consultancy with them, information from them, and they were ready to be able to help us draft the feed report, which is the other report that's gone alongside it. And realistically, that's, I guess, what we're focusing on today, because I think everybody really wants to know about how Ukraine is going to play out. How are those reports tailored towards all the supply chain in reality. I mean, I think if you start at farmer level, then the dairy report, which is actually quite positive, because unlike in 2014, when Putin invaded Ukraine first, then there were sanctions on dairy and we exported 250,000 tonnes of cheese equivalent to uh, Russia. And there was a ban put on that and that precipitated the dairy crisis of 15-16, when we had two years of disastrous prices. Now, this time round, we're not dependent on Russia for exports. In fact, Belarus, who are going to be affected by this because they won't be accessing the world markets, we don't think, and Ukraine, who are going to be disrupted, then they account for about 1.2 billion or about 2% of world trade, which isn't very much. But if anything, if they're not accessing world markets, then that will only help world markets because there's no stocks at present. So that was that one dealt with. That was the analysis that was done on the dairy markets. The feed markets is far more serious. And and I think, you know, what we've got to do now in terms of you saying who we're going to communicate with, it will be the farmers as ourselves so that we get them prepared. And I can take you through step by step each link in the chain, the processors so that they start to understand what might be the impact of higher feed costs and what that might do to milk flows. And then finally, the retail, including food service, so that they know that costs of production are going to rapidly rise again over and above what we did in a report last autumn. Yeah, because I guess it's kind of the perfect storm of Brexit followed by a pandemic, followed by a war. It's not a great sequence of events, is it? No, and we'd already got inflation in the supply chain from hangover after COVID. We did the report beyond reset last October, November, about the rising cost of production. And we expect to break even milk price to be around 35, 36p by late spring this year. And it was on track for that. That report actually was very helpful because the processors could take that independent report, which was talking about inflation at farm level, which was about 5p a litre, and at processor level, which was around 1 to 2p a litre. They could take that to their customers and actually get increases out of the supply chain, which has helped getting the increases through the winter. The problem now is that this next set of information is, is going to be harder. Well, it's harder in a way because we were trying to communicate with retail supply that actually in another document that um, you know UK dairy prices have been below world prices now for three years because retail has held back on dairy prices. We've come out with that report and we were saying that because of the environmental restrictions we're increasingly seeing around the world, that meant the UK was probably going to be a place to source milk in future and therefore they need to recognise that and needed to increase their prices. That was one message which still remains relevant but now on top of that then we've got to communicate the message that we've got rising costs at farm level again and processor level so there's going to be further inflationary rises in uh, dairy and I think across the food supply chain which I think everybody's coming to terms with but it's hard retailers don't like it. Is the origin of that at this particular time the fact that Ukraine is such a big exporter of agricultural products? 
Yeah, it's largely down to feed because basically what we're saying on the feed cost side is you start with the premise that actually there are virtually no stocks. So we're at a very low stock use ratio. There are stocks in the world, but typically, say, for instance, with maize, we're running about 12%. We normally should be running about 25 to 30%. With wheat, we're running around 20 odd percent. We should be in the low 30s or, or towards 40%. So we're operating in a world where there's relatively low stocks. That's the first thing. And also, interestingly, half those stocks, or at least half of them, are in China. So that's really bad news for the world. We were already in a crisis in a way because of that low stock level and because of uncertainty about production in the world this year anyway, because La Nina. But this now has just compounded it and crashed it. And what's happening is that the forward markets are obviously reacting because they're anticipating that it won't be so easy to grow a crop in Ukraine. Whether or not crops will be grown is debatable. I mean, there will be some obviously could be grown in Western Ukraine. But that uncertainty has spiked the markets and also the disruption on, on the ports because of logistics getting grain out of Russia and will there be embargoes on Russian grain as well, which is quite possibly likely because certainly the West doesn't really want to buy Russian goods as it looks at present. And then on top of that, the biggest thing, which I don't think anybody's talking about properly yet, is the fact that we're running short on fertiliser. We were running short on fertiliser because of high gas prices already. And actually now it's been compounded because Russia, who account for 40% of the ammonium nitrate produced in the world, are actually put a ban on that export until June of this year. And that is really serious news. And that, I think, is causing this spike in feed prices, which I think will cause actually a lot of, if you look at wheat, uh, wheat in the US has gone up. It's now just short of 300 pounds. It was only uh, three or four months ago, 130, 140 pounds. So that's a 50% increase. And you've got soy now over 500 and it was in the 350s. So, you know, we've had big spikes in those conventional feeds just on the back of this. And that's going to put a lot of cost back into farm level. Starting at the bottom with the farmers, what's the prognosis on the farm level? One of the things we've got to try and do, and this is the job, and we're coming out with a cost of production update, we're preparing it as we speak, and that will be out in the supply chain next week, is we've got to communicate what these costs are going to do. And in addition to the feed costs, there'll also be fuel costs and electricity costs and inflation in general. And it don't be surprised if that report talks about break-even milk prices around 40 pence, which is staggering. Yeah, you know, we've never seen anything quite like that with a four starting in it. And we've got to get that out there because what's going to happen at farm level is that farmers currently you know, thinking they're doing, you know, they've had it well done. They've got an increase of 35, 36p. They're still behind the curve. And therefore, some of them, not all of them, but some of them will be tied for cash. And they've got working capital to spend in the spring, obviously growing crops, et cetera. So I think the feeling at farm level will be we need to get that money out of the market as soon as possible in order to keep the security of supply running in the UK and obviously elsewhere. And what about the next level up with the processors? 
Well, I think the processes have got the biggest challenge, if I'm perfectly honest. That's why we try and help them, because we don't see ourselves as working against each other. We see ourselves as working collaboratively because the processes have got increased costs themselves. Certainly fuel with the gas prices, that will be a big impact on their costs again and packaging, which we saw before and transport. So there's all of those costs which are probably going to be similar increases to what we saw last autumn for processes. But beyond that, the biggest challenge processes have got present is communicating with retailers. The retailers, understandably, because they're looking into a recession, then they don't want to see further increases in raw materials, in costs. So the retailers aren't rolling over and saying, oh yeah, just send us the bill and we'll pay the extra money. They're not. So I think the processors know they've got to pay more for the milk. They know they've got to have that in terms of security, but they've got to communicate that with their customers in turn to try and get that out of the market because they operate on very tight margins. It's a low margin industry in that regard. Where's all that money going to come from? Is it the end consumer or are they going to have to be grants or loans? Or No, it's going to have to be the end consumer. And if you put it into real context, dairy will still remain a fantastic value for money nutrition product because even if four pints went from £1.15, which is being held at, at present by Aldi and others, if it went up to £1.50, it would still be fantastic value for money when you put it alongside two pints of almond milk or soy milk, which would cost you just the same and have less than half the nutrients in the pack. So, you know, it's still fantastic value. And when you look at cheese and you look at all the other dairy products, then, you know, the increases we're talking about will not make a big effect when you feed it through in to the consumer pocket but now i realize that people will criticize and say yes of course it will and there will be poor consumers if you ask me the really poor in addition to the poor consumers in the uk or in the western world i think the real sufferers in the world at present will because of this rising cost of food will actually be the poorer people in the world in north africa where you know there's a lot of poor people and they won't be able to you know for them these increases in food costs and dairy will make dairy possibly out of their reach. You mentioned prices going up. Will it also affect availability or will it, will it still be there? Or it'll just cost more. Ah, that's a really good question. On the supply side on dairy around the world, then we were running already as we hit this storm, just running negatively in the world. And, and dairy production has been slipping in the last recent months, both in New Zealand and in Europe, because these are the environmental constraints I was talking about earlier, which we were saying in the Beyond Reset report. So we'd already got a problem of not increasing dairy output, a little bit of increase in the States, but nothing like it's been in recent times. So with no growth of supply in the world on dairy and demand growing still by about one to two percent and coming out of COVID, then there was a demand imbalance. So commodities have gone up to return prices of over 45 pence a litre. The average UK price still in the UK now is about 35. So we're miles off the commodity prices that are being achieved elsewhere in the world. And that, I guess, is where the tensions are building at present in the supply chain. Your question about availability is the pertinent one. And the reason is that actually in that world of uh, very tight supply, which is what we've got currently, then actually this is hard news for the retailers. Then actually you've got to try and convince them you're not arguing about price. You're arguing about whether or not you get what you want. 
And I think that's a really big ask at present for retailers to take on board because they've never been in their careers in that place. The retailers have always been dealing with people who wanted to sell to them, whereas now there's going to be quite strong competition for their products. And that's a different ball game. Won't stay like that forever, I make no doubt, but it's a different ball game for everybody in the chain to play. There's a lot of processors in the dairy industry that deal with Russia and companies like in the past Arla, Valio, they've stopped their production. Other companies and processors haven't stopped selling to Russia. Is that going to be a market that completely stops either because of not being able to take payments or because of pressure of boycotts, that kind of thing? As I said earlier, I mean, Russia is a totally different kettle of fish now because, forgive that pun, because we no longer sell to them very much. I mean, that's what analysis showed. We only buy in the equivalent of 100 million litres, which in the great scheme of things is diddly squat. And that's, you know, less than 1%. So that isn't going to be a problem. And those businesses you mentioned are not really trading that much with Russia. Now, I think there are dairy companies who are in Russia processing, notably Lactalis and um, also Danone, and they will be impacted because their businesses in Russia will be being affected. And they've also got businesses in Ukraine. So I think they will be exposed to some of that, but they were really producing for domestic markets. One thing and I don't like Putin at all. I think he's a he's an absolute horrible person and what he's done is despicable. But the one thing he did for agriculture since 2014 is he really has increased the amount of grains they produce, the amount of dairy they produce. He has transformed the agricultural sector. So they're far more now self-sufficient. And the real problem is, and that's the same with grains, you know, 30% dependent on Russia and Ukraine for world trade grains. I mean, that's, that's something that sneaked up on people. We knew it. And we warned about it in the autumn. But, you know, people are now finding out what supply chains are really like, aren't they? That's right. And then, of course, it's not we're not talking about the entire world boycotting Russia because China isn't. So if if somebody pulls out of a market, then obviously other countries will have the capacity to move in there. Yeah, and, and I think we saw that with analysis on feeds. It isn't the fact that we might fall out and not do trade with Russia or won't be able to do trade with Ukraine. It, because, as you say, they'll find a home for their grain somewhere else, notably China. But the reality is that when you get a country like Ukraine that actually can't produce, that's the difference. That's what's causing the spike in feed prices. It isn't the fact that you've got disrupted trade. That's one element. It's the fact you might not get the grains grown. That's the real problem. And on top of that, it's that fertilizer issue. Because if the fertilizer isn't there, it's not there in the rest of the world to grow the crops. That's why we're concerned that it could be heading for a food crisis later on this year. We won't be the losers. It'll be the poor people in the world who are the losers on that basis. And so you're talking about like Africa and parts of the Americas? Yeah, because it'll be certainly in Africa. I mean, you know, the Middle East, they've got oils. They will get good income from their oil. They'll be able to afford the food. But when you look around poorer parts of the world, then as, as commodity prices rise, and I'm not just talking dairy, I'm talking in general, 
than those poorer people. And remember what happened in 2012? That was the sparking of the Arab Spring, wasn't it? In terms of the revolutions that started all across North Africa. That was because of food prices. That's what did it then. Don't be surprised now if we've got the world being really disturbed in terms of what's going on in it later on this year. I'm sorry to say. You mean politically? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who knows what that's going to do? I'm here to talk about dairy markets, but, you know, an unstable world is not good for anybody. It's going to create lots of uncertainty. Where do you see the dairy market going short and medium term? Well, the dairy market short because although you've got that turmoil in the world, there's still a demand for dairy from growing economies and people, as they get richer, they want to consume more dairy. So I don't think I wouldn't panic anybody in the dairy sector. And these prices yet are not appearing. They probably are dampening off demand in some markets, but they're not killing off demand You know, with commodities up around equivalent of 45 pence. So therefore, we see that those prices will certainly hold, possibly go higher into the autumn, certainly go higher in the UK, because we'll have to catch up with those commodity prices and then hold into next year. Now, if farmers do start getting in the region of more than 40p a litre, I suspect once the world starts getting a little bit more normal, then we will then go back into a cycle whereby we will start to see falling prices. But we're a long way off that at present. I wouldn't be trying to panic anybody on that. I would be saying to farmers, have confidence and carry on doing what you're doing, because actually you should try and make some good money in these times. I'm afraid war and food do go together, and usually it's good for farmers. A lot of it is going to depend on where the war goes and how long it takes. Yes, and we've done some scenario planning on that basis. And frankly, in all the scenario planning we've done, it doesn't look as though it's going to be very bright. I won't bore you with all the scenarios we've looked at. So there's no real good end to this, regardless of how long it takes? The bad is obviously all those poor people who are dying and being injured. There's a lot of rebuilding. Ultimately, one day will have to take place in Ukraine. So those are the bad news. But the good news is I think Western society is going to have to face into making serious decisions about what really matters in this world, maybe making some sacrifices, which they haven't been often prepared to do in the past, and actually starting to value food. And along with food and wanting the sustainable food that everybody says we want, which we do as well, they're going to have to start to value security. And I think that will be one positive coming out of this is that food security, as well as sustainability, are going to be twin track requirements of the food supply chain. That was very much on the front burner with all of the COP26 and all of those things. And then all of a sudden it seems to be relegated again because it's seemingly less important. So, Yeah, it isn't less important. It's going to matter because, uh, you know, and I would say, you know, don't become part of the gang who says, oh, well, told you a good war will sort them all out. No, at the end of the day, you know, we've got to have sustainable food production as well, because that will be another one of these disasters we could be talking about in 10 or 20 years time. So this is a lesson for us as well. But actually, people learning to value food and value food security for sustainable, nutritious food has got to be the key message coming out of what we've learning. Definitely very informative, if not a bit scary, but it does show how important food security and safety is. And that does it for this week's podcast. I don't have any interviews ready for next week yet, so the pressure's on. 
I do have an interview coming up in a couple of hours, but the interviewee hasn't confirmed yet, which is always a bit concerning. You never know if you're going to be the only one on the line. I always log into the interviews a few minutes early just to make sure that everything's working. And then I turn off my microphone just in case I'm recording for a few minutes and then completely forget that the microphone's on and start singing or talking to the dog. And then, of course, when the other person shows up, I forget that it's muted. Hopefully, I'll be able to do something this weekend other than just sit and rest my foot, although that's probably what I should be doing. I'm not a great user of painkillers and anti-inflammatories, but I admit I did take a painkiller on the first day, although the fact that I had to use the stairs to get to them probably wasn't a good idea. But at least I found them, because locating things in the house isn't one of my strong points, and that might be because tidiness also isn't. I do know where the fridge is though, so it's time to go and see what's in it. And so I hope wherever in the world you may be, you have a great week, stay safe and take care. And of course, please send some positive thoughts to Eastern Europe. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.